camouflage is as old as warfare itself. We have records of a man by the name of Vegetius writing in the fourth century of naval camouflage being used way back centuries before uh, in the Gallic Wars. Uh, naval camouflage, ships being painted in such a way as to obscure uh, the ability of people on the shoreline as to, to just who was that and what's going on with that. That, of course, didn't stop just with the Gallic Wars. That continues on even into the 20th century, World War I. Uh, the British began to use certain techniques of naval camouflage so as to be able to, well, I'm not going to say hide, you can't really hide a ship, but to make it harder for German U-boat uh, commanders to be able to sink uh, those merchant ships as they were out there on, on the sea. So what they did was, it was a technique called the dazzle technique. And so the idea, thought was, the theory was, that what you would do is you would paint these broad uh, almost random colors and shapes and stripes on the hull of the ship. And the theory was that that would make it very difficult for sub-commanders as they were looking and trying to ascertain the size, the shape, the course, the range, the speed, all of that. It would make it difficult for them to actually wage a successful attack on that ship. And that met with varying degrees of su success, uh, that dazzle approach. The idea, of course, of camouflage, whether you're talking out there on the, on the high seas or out in the backwoods, Whatever it may be, the idea behind camouflage, the thought is, is to make things hidden and hard to truly see, right? We know that. That's what camouflage is for, to make things hidden and hard to truly see. And what our text shows us here this morning is that there are some profound things that are hidden from our natural sight and hard to truly see. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, we are right at the very end of this chapter, Matthew chapter 20. If you're trying to find Matthew's gospel, that's the first of the four gospels, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in Matthew 20, like I said, right there towards the very end of chapter 20. Matthew 20, it's a short text, profound in its implications to be sure, uh, Matthew 20 verses 29 through 34. Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. Hear now God's word. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray together for a moment. Who can discern his errors? Oh, would you declare us innocent from hidden faults? Would you keep your servants back from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over us? Then we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Such is the prayer of David. And we would echo that prayer and go a little further with what, even with what he says in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Lord, we also this morning come with this very, these very words that were upon the lips of those two men sitting by the road as you came by. Let our eyes be opened. And we go to you, we ask this of you, humbly acknowledging that you are the only one that can give us sight. And so that we ask, and we ask in your name, amen. Blindness, some of you may know, was common in the ancient Near East, sadly, tragically common in the ancient Near East because of various forms of diseases and certain infections as they would make their way uh, into, into the eyes. Uh, not surprising, we see blindness as a predominant theme coming up again and again and again through the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. You see, obviously, certain incidences when you think back to, uh, I'll just say, the, the, well, the Old Testament. You have poor old Isaac being tricked by his, his own son. He was, of course, his eyesight was fading at the time. You have uh, Samson. Samson with his eyes being gouged out. Horrible, horrible scene there with uh, Delilah. Years later, in the, in the New Testament era, we have Saul, later who became Paul. Saul, there on the road to Damascus in the midst of his conversion experience, he undergoes a form of, of blindness. Uh, blindness is, uh, again, like I said, a predominant image. You have a lot of examples of this. It always implies, when it comes to the, t- the truth, an inability to see the truth, or perhaps even worse, an unwillingness to face it. And it connotes with all of that a sense of terror and helplessness and despair because you cannot see, again, whether physically or spiritually. One other thing, again and again and again, Old and New Testament, it was recognized, this is just obvious in the imagery, that God alone can restore someone's sight, again, whether physically or spiritually. God is the only one who's going to be able to restore our sight. Now, what do we see in this text? Jesus restoring sight. Let's back up, talk about the context of what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples are moving south from the region of Galilee, moving down towards Jerusalem. That means they're going down the Jordan Valley in order to, from the Jordan Valley to get up into, towards Jerusalem. They make a, a turn to the west. They're going up into Jericho. This is not the same Jericho that you may remember from the book of Joshua and the walls fell down, although it's pretty close. This is first century Jericho. It is a wealthy city by this time. The region that this little town of Jericho or city of Jericho at this time sits in was a region that was known for the production of balsam. Balsam was believed to be, at the the time, something that could be used in a natural way to help heal blindness. So you see that between the wealth of the city and what the region is producing with this balsam, it's not surprising that this is a draw for people who are suffering from blindness. There they are. And into that setting comes Jesus. And following Jesus, I don't really want to say so much following, along with him, but at With him are crowds. Crowds, a multitude is described here with him. And they're heading towards the Passover, heading towards Jerusalem for a Passover, which we'll get to in in the coming weeks. Matthew, as a witness of all of this, wants us to understand something. 
that Jesus gives sight to the blind. Pushing it further, Jesus alone, Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. And in order for us to see, we have to look to him. That's what Matthew would have us to understand. And recording this and the way he records it, we'll delve into that in just a few minutes. But the main idea, is, again, is this. Jesus gives, and Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. If we would see any of us, we must look to him. Now, how do we see that? And what, what are the things that come up here that we can engage with and need to think through pertaining to this? Three points. It's there in your outline. First, the reality of this miracle. We have to begin there. Did this even happen? Is this even possible? We have to begin with that. The reality of this miracle. The second thing, building off of that, is the necessity of this miracle. And then third, last, but hardly least, is the wonder of what's transpiring here. So you have the reality, you have the necessity, building on each one building on the other, the wonder. So let's look at these in turn. First, the reality of this miracle. We need to reckon with the fact, because if it's not true, if it didn't happen, there's really no point in talking about it. This is an historical event that took place in space and time. This really, really, truly happened. That's, it might be worth, before we get too far into that, thinking about, what is a miracle? We use that terminology, what are we talking about? Now, in our day, we use that word fairly loosely. When, when we speak in just casual conversation and the word miracle is thrown out, it could mean a whole host of different things. It could mean just a surprising outcome. I can't believe I passed that test. What a miracle! Maybe. I don't know. Um, my, it might be just a, a tremendous uh, life-altering event in your, in your life. The birth of a child. The miracle of, of, of that. Okay, that's fine. But you see how broad now the terminology is getting. Or sports fans, Tennessee Titans fans, the Music City miracle. I won't unpack all that. You can Google it later. Um, but you see how broad and how, how wide and almost carefree we use that term. Well, the Bible is nowhere near so carefree. It's much more specific and, and, and uh, intentional in, in how the word is used. Signs and wonders. Wonders, mighty works, events that take place that force the witnesses to reckon with the reality of the presence and power of God on display in that moment and in that event. Wonders, wondrous works, signs, meaning that, and the Apostle John in particular uses this language, that as a sign meaning that as, as, as amazing and astonishing as the thing is that has just happened that you can see. It is pointing towards signify, excuse me, signifying something even greater. So signs and, and wonders, the miraculous, that's the way the Bible uses that word. And that's certainly what we see here. This is a sign. This is a wonder. So that's the terminology, just getting that out of the way. Now let's deal with some assumptions here um, or reckoning with some of, of arguments that might be made. Uh, look, we have to be honest and just acknowledge the fact that we're not used to this. Miracles aren't just popping up around us all the time. And sometimes that makes it hard for us to, to believe that such a thing could even be true. Need to consider this point, though. It wasn't any more common for those folks than it is for us. When you read the Bible and the historical record spreading out over the course of centuries, yes, there are a lot of miracles recorded there. 
but they're spread out over a tremendous period of time, and they occur in bursts. It wasn't like every other day some dead person was now getting up and running around, or a lame person was getting up and walking, or a deaf person. It wasn't like that at all. Spread over long periods of time and coming in in bursts. With that acknowledgement and just thinking that thing through is something else that ought to be said, and that has to do with our assumptions, the assumptions that we bring to the table when we're thinking about such things. We all have assumptions. We have assumptions about everything, all of us, even this. And for all of us, our assumptions inevitably drive our conclusions as to how we think and process what it is that we're thinking about, what we bring to the table. J.I. Packer, a very wise and well-stated, studied uh, theologian, put it this way. I'm going to read to you this quote here. Belief in the miraculous is integral to Christianity. Theologians who discard all miracles, thus obliging themselves to deny Jesus' incarnation and resurrection, the two supreme miracles of Scripture, should not claim to be Christians. The claim is not valid. The rejection of miracles by yesterday's scientists sprang not from science, but from the dogma of a universe of absolute uniformity that scientists brought to their scientific work. There's nothing irrational about believing that God who made the world can still intrude creatively into it. Christians should recognize that it is not faith in biblical miracles and in God's ability to work miracles today, should he so wish, but doubt about these things. That is unreasonable. Now, that's a challenge worth hearing. We need to strive to be open as we consider these things and let the evidence speak. All that is to say, this is part of what it means to consider the reality of this miracle, that it happened. There's a whole lot more we could say on that point. We just have to keep pressing on. I do want to say this in terms of application. Let's say you're in conversation with someone, and they're pushing back on you saying, I just can't believe that, this, that such things as in Matthew 20 are even possible, or the incarnation, or the resurrection, as Packer is pointing out there. In that conversation, it's fair then to probe just a little bit and say, well, can we talk about some of the assumptions that you're bringing to the table? Can we just kind of talk this through? Have you just ruled it out out of hand as being impossible from the beginning? That might be a fruitful way to go down that road in the conversation. But let me say also, to, to just us here in the room right now. Some of us right now may be grappling with, may be doubting, is this even possible? Do I even believe that Jesus could do what's recorded for us here in Matthew's Gospel? Did this even happen? Is that even possible? And I would say, friend, I would urge you to interrogate your questions, interrogate your doubts. Ask yourself, is, it, is this intellectual? It might be. Do you need more facts? We could talk about that. Or could it possibly be something not so much of the mind, but of the heart? You're afraid of the implications of where this could go if this is true and what it might mean for you. And that's a very different kind of struggle than just the intellectual kind. Again, Jesus is alone the one who restores sight. If we would see, we must turn to him. That's the first thing, the reality of the miracle. Now, let's push on. Necessity. Why does this 
have to happen for these men? In some ways it's obvious, in some ways it's not. There are two forms of blindness that we see in this passage. One is as obvious, one is not. We're going to talk about both. Two forms of blindness that we see. Physical blindness and spiritual blindness. Let's look again at the text. Verses 33 through 34. There at the end. They, that is to say, that the two men said to him, Jesus, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And it's worth noting here that in verse 33, the word that Matthew uses for eyes is literal physical eyes. What's in your eye sockets? Let those be opened. But what's interesting is that in the next verse, verse 34, that's not the same word. It's not the word that's used for literal, natural eyes. It's a word that's oftentimes used to describe or or could be translated as the eyes of the soul. And what's going on here? Why is it we see a distinction being made even in that, in the phraseology of verses 33 and 34? Okay, let's talk first about the physical blindness. It would be foolish not to address that. Let's talk about these two men, what they've, ex- what they've lived, what they're experiencing. Again, in that time and place, their disability certainly then meant an inability to work and to provide for themselves. That then meant, sadly, tragically, destitution and dependence on the mercy of those around them. And in fact, the other gospel writers describe these two men as being beggars. So that's what their experience is. That's what they're living day after day after day after day. But what do they know? What do they know? They know some profound things. And we see that in the requests that they make. Again, verse 30 through 32. You can see it here. So, behold, there were two blind men sitting by that roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried. Note, they're not saying this until he passes by. When he's passing by, they erupt. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. They're not to be dissuaded. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, let's just break it down, three things. Lord, at the very least, at the very least, a sign of reverence and respect. It may not be more than that, but at the very least, it's it's certainly that. Son of David, no mere man, this is the Messiah the one who's to usher in the very thing that we read of in Isaiah 35 earlier, the messianic age, that which is the age to come, that is coming, has come partially and will come one day come in full. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. You don't ask that of him if you don't think he can do something. And what does they think he can do? Heal their sight. Do you see what they know? What these two men know, now the great irony of all this is, the two men who can't see anything see everything. And those around them who see everything see nothing. You see the difference? The dynamics here, you have physical blindness, yes. But you have also something that's far more tragic. And that is spiritual blindness. Now, we've already seen that in Matthew 20. I know this is some weeks ago when we were there. But if you just go back a few verses, a few paragraphs in this chapter, you can see a few instances of of obvious blindness. Now, one is opposition. 
the, the strong, dire, ugly opposition uh, that Jesus was facing there, verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 20. See, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, this is the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Well, this is, wow, that is ugly, clear, obvious, right in your face, opposition. But then there's confusion. Just, just muddy thinking and inability to, to even see what's going on. You have the crowds. We just read that with the two blind men there in Jericho. What do they want to do? They want to shut them up, right? We read they rebuke them. The two, these two blind men who are begging on the side of the road, all they want is to be relieved of that. And the crowds say, shut up. He doesn't want anything to do with you. And they sound remarkably like the disciples did earlier when they said something almost of the same nature to some parents who were bringing their young children to Jesus and in essence said, shut up. He doesn't want anything to do with you and your children. He's got so many other better things to do. And speaking of the disciples, this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus ask a question like we see here in our text this morning. If you go just, to, again, Matthew 20, just a little bit later than what I just read, 18 and 19, verses 20 and 21, we see a, almost the same question. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, to him, excuse me, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. It's almost the same question. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And how do these disciples, with their mama as their mouthpiece, how do these disciples answer? We want position. We want prestige. We want power. And you see the blindness. Not just the blindness of, of outright opposition, but the blindness of obvious confusion here Again, the physical blindness, the spiritual blindness, all of which points us towards the absolute necessity of this miracle. That sight would be recovered, and the only one that can do that is Jesus. How do any of us come to see? To see the truth. How do any of us come? This takes us to the absolute necessity to persistent prayer. that those around us would see, that we ourselves would see. I mean, yes, there, of course, is a place for logical argument and, and reason and persuasion and all of that. But ultimately, none of, no heart's conviction hinges on that, ultimately. Thank God he can use those things, and he calls us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we profess. But ultimately... New sight, recovered sight, spiritual sight does not hinge on the brilliance of our arguments. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, there are some really sound points that can be made in support of the pro-life cause. We can start with just this axiom. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. 
it is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Therefore, what? Abortion is wrong. And that is completely, obviously, clearly supported by the science of embryology, that we are, we are human from the moment of our conception. It doesn't, you know, stages of development don't change a thing as to whether or not you're human. And where you are in the process does not change whether or not you're a human. Whether you're in the uterus or in the birth canal or in the delivery room, you are human. Now, a, a, a pushback to that might be, well, you're just, you're just religious, and that's why you say that. And you say, no, 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 you don't, you don't have to get yourself caught up in that kind of argument. I just gave you reasoned facts and a rational argument, and all you've done is label me, accuse me of being religious. Can we just talk? Can we have a conversation here? This is why I believe what I believe. Why do you believe what you believe? And let's not just throw labels at one another. Or perhaps someone might say, well, what about a woman's right to choose? To which then you can respond gently but clearly, choose what? We should be free to choose a whole host of things, all of us. But certainly not the intentional taking of an innocent human life. Or someone might say, what you're just talking about a clump of cells here. To which you can take them back to the science of embryology. Say, no, 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 let's, let's go back to that again. There's a whole host of things. I'm just, actually, you think I'm talking, this is a pro-life sermon all of a sudden. It's a pro-life sub-point. The point is the arguments, the reasoned, rational arguments that you can make that don't get a hearing. There are other reasoned, rational arguments you can make in, in other fields. You can say, can't you see the intelligent design around you? Does that not demand an intelligent designer? You can point to the moral law that is uh, clearly in place on every human heart. We can see that. Sociologists and anthropologists can tell you about that. Does that not imply a moral lawgiver? Again, these are, these are just, you can go a, a million different directions in terms of these rational, reasoned arguments that can be made, and yet they aren't heard. Why? Because there are two forms of blindness, physical and spiritual, which therein brings the necessity to persistent prayer that we might see. We are not won by arguments alone. That's not the way the human heart works. We're won by the movement of the Spirit in the heart. And they're in a call to prayer. Jesus alone gives us eyes to see. We have to be looking to him that we might then see. Which then takes us to the third point. And this might be the most significant of all. With the reality of the miracle, that it happened, and then the necessity of the miracle, then you have the wonder of it. Now, if I can just play with the wording, what do you see with this account? 
if you're there, what do you see? You as the bystander, you as the, the witness. What is Matthew helping us to see? You start with what Jesus did. The wonder of what Jesus does here. The power on display. You know, it, it's interesting that um, all other times that you see a miracle being worked in the Old and New Testament accounts, the performer of that miracle, whether it's Moses or Elijah or Elisha or Peter or Paul or whoever it is, in every case, they're quick to point to the fact that, it, that they didn't do it. That it was a power from outside themselves. It was God alone that could do this. That's not what you see with Jesus. He points nowhere else. No, at no point does he deflect saying, oh, it wasn't me. I, I didn't do it. Not in any way at all. And, and something else that's worth noting is that not only at all other times is that what you see in play, but at no other time, up until Jesus shows up, do you see the blind recovering their sight? That's striking. That and the fact that this seems to be his most common miracle, giving sight to the blind. And what do those things tell us about who this is? Especially given the fact that we know that only God, only God can give sight to the blind. And this is not, by the way, think about this with me just for a moment. This is not surgery. This is not a therapy. This is not a medication. This is not a treatment. You know, something that just takes a long period of time. This was something instant. Dead cells functioning again. And sight. And sight. What does this tell us? Just what Jesus does here. What do you see if you're standing there on the roadside in Jericho watching this? You're gobsmacked. Something else, though, not just what Jesus did is well worth noting, but how he does it. How he does it. Let me read this to you again, verses 32 to 34. And stopping. So the two men, you know, they, they, they've been shouting. The crowds rebuke them. They refuse to be silenced. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Get this, the steps. He stopped. The gospel writers tell us that his face was set on Jerusalem, and yet somehow at the same time, his ears are tuned to their cry. He stopped. And then he, he asked, He doesn't just act upon them as though they were impersonal objects, but he engages with them and draws them out with a question. 
course he knows what they want. How could could anyone in the scene not know what they want? But he's engaging with them. He's drawing them out. And then he touches them. I don't know what his hands feel like. Craftsman's hands, carpenter's hands, they're rough hands. But they felt those hands on their face And what's the first thing they saw with their new sight? His face. His face. There's a wonder in all of this. Not just what he did, but how he does it. How compassionately, how personally he engages with these two men. It's, it's almost enough to make me ask this question. Well, actually, I am asking it. Which is more wondrous? Which is more amazing? What Jesus did or how he does it? You see, in, in, in the study of, of this event, of this miracle, we don't want to lose sight of the person who is revealing himself to us in the miracle. Again, the question that Jesus is is asking is so profound when you consider the fact that he's asking, what do you want me to do for you? My friends, what would it do for you this morning if you were to believe that it is just possible that he is asking that question of you right now? What do you want me to do for you? What would that do to your view of God? If you believe that he is such a God that would engage with you in that way, what does that stir within you, down deep in your heart? If he is that kind of God, what is he trying to draw out of you with that question? What does he want you to see? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. If we're going to see, we have to look to him. I want to end with this article here. It's a section, an excerpt from a larger article. You'll love the title. The Lighthouse That Wrecked More People Than It Saved. The region it's referring to is Jervis Bay in southern Australia. 1857, the colonial architect Alexander Dawson and an assistant surveyor, E.F. Millington, you haven't heard of these guys again for a reason. I'll just say that. Began looking for a site suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. Unfortunately, Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction rather than providing an efficient navigation aid. When the pilot's board, which was the controlling authority, went to verify the location Dawson chose, they found that the site was not visible from the required approaches. They also found the map prepared by Millington and Dawson suffered from, quote, discrepancies of so grave a character that it is impossible to decide whether either position marked on the map really exists. The board also suspected that Dawson chose the site solely because it was situated closer to a quarry he planned to 
obtain stones from. Despite the glaring deficiencies in the planning stage and disagreement by a majority of the board, for reasons not known, the chairman of the board authorized the construction of the lighthouse. For the next four decades, the ill-sighted lighthouse, which was visible neither from the northern approach to Jervis Bay nor from the south, was responsible for some two dozen shipwrecks. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the Point Perpendicular Light in Point Perpendicular, aptly named, a much more suitable location for a lighthouse on this part of the coast. Even after decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause navigational problems, especially on moonlit nights when the golden sandstone tower glowed in the dark. So, near the turn of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. Now, what does that have to do with the text, you may be wondering? Glad you asked. It is simply not enough to say, Jesus gives sight to the blind. We have to go a little further and say, Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. All others are at best partial and incomplete, flawed at best, like cracked lenses in a set of glasses, to be more accurate, not just flawed, but ultimately fatal, like an ill-placed lighthouse by the seashore that will ultimately misguide and leave us wrecks on the shoreline. Jesus alone gives us true insight into our hearts. Jesus alone gives us the wisdom, the answer to the deepest questions that we have about where do we come from? Why are we here? What is my life about and how should I then live? Jesus alone is the answer to the deepest questions that we have in terms of, of, of the hunger that we feel, the, the yearning that we have for yet more. He is the one that is the answer to all of that. Now, how can we say that? Because of who he is. The creator, the preserver, and the savior. He alone gives sight. And without him, we cannot see. We cannot see. Jesus alone gives sight to the blind. Let us look to him that we might see. Let's pray. Lord, it is a stunning thing to see, to observe, to witness not just what you did, but how. That you stopped, that you asked, and that you touched. You alone. You alone would do these things. You alone could do these things. And so this morning, our response, the only sane response to you this morning, is, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Some of us here know you and know you pretty well, but we have our blind spots. Have mercy. Help us to examine ourselves and truly be your followers, your disciples. And some of us here, Lord, this morning don't know you. 
But we want to. If this is who you are, we want to have mercy. We would follow you. Help us. Lord, we can clearly see that those men there on that roadside were not the same after who they encountered that day. May that be true of us. We pray in your name. Amen.